Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Sean, welcome to the roundtable. Ah, great to be with you, Rudyard. Yeah, Stuart's taking a well-deserved Friday off, so it's you and I going mano a mano. I'm looking forward to it. Um, on the first half of the show, let's dig into uh, the latest week of uh, the war against Hamas, what we see happening, and try to kind of tease out the Canadian uh, context to all this and what's kind of happening here in Canada as the repercussions of this war unfold through uh, the halls of academia, student college campuses um, across Canada behaving very badly. Let's get into that in the first half. In the second half, we got to talk uh, carbon tax. A big announcement by the government this week. Is this the beginning of the end of the carbon tax? What the heck does it mean when governments roll out these big policies, pledge fealty to their goals and purposes, and then start chipping away as political necessity begins to bite. So let's get into that in the second half of the show. But Sean, what do you think we learned this this last week? We're, uh, we're now going on uh, three weeks since these horrible terrorist attacks against uh, Israel. The debate rages here. My sense, though, is that some things are shifting. Maybe mm-hmm. some clarity is coming to... Uh, to the Canadian public about the nature of this debate, its participants, who and what people believe, um, unpack it all for us. Yeah, that, that's interesting, uh, Roger. I, 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 I could respond in different ways. Um, why don't I take up um, the ongoing challenge that this issue represents for the Trudeau government? Um, uh, the Prime Minister at different times over the past few weeks um, has said all of the right things about Israel's right to self-defense. Um, but at other times, he's he's wobbled a bit. And we know from some good reporting um, by the Globe and Mail and others, and frankly, uh, the admissions of the prime minister himself, uh, that this is an issue uh, that greatly divides his caucus. And what struck me, Roger, is the extent to which that division has spilled out into the public. There are um, a lot of liberal MPs who are essentially freelancing at this point, you know, you can discern the different camps. Anthony House Feather, a Jewish member of parliament from Montreal, has come out firmly in support of Israel and, and, and has even gone so far, I think, to, to criticize um, members of his own caucus who've taken uh, the other side of this issue. Um, Cabinet Minister Bill Blair similarly similarly has taken out, taken a kind of hawkish position that diverges uh, from the messaging of the prime minister um, and um, Melanie Jolie. Um, and then, of course, there are something approaching 25 uh, liberal MPs who signed this open letter about a week or so ago uh, calling uh, uh, for a ceasefire. We've not seen um, these fissures emerge in the Conservative Party, um, uh, the Conservative Party caucus. Uh, one can kind of speculate about that. One, I think, reason is Israel... Um, looms support for Israel looms larger in conservative dogma, um, just generally. But you know, it's worth 
being blunt about it, there are few Arab or Muslim members of parliament in the conservative caucus. Uh, and so, you know, one can't help but think that's a major factor. What's interesting, though, of course, is before the attacks on October 7th, conservatives were actively courting um, Canadian Muslims, uh, including but not limited to issues around parental rights um, and educational curriculum. And so there, there's a kind of interesting dynamic here at play uh, on um, the extent to which um, uh, these different voices in our politics are, are manifesting themselves in response to uh, uh, the attack and, and the impending war. Yeah, it's interesting. If you add up these liberal MPs who have come out in favor of a ceasefire and then the 30-odd uh, members of the NDP caucus who similarly support a ceasefire, that's not an insignificant yes. chunk of the House of Commons. It's certainly enough if taken away from you know, the liberal NDP kind of coalition government, whatever we want to call it, would in a sense turn it into a minority. Um, and I just think it's worth noting just how Maybe some listeners would say, well, you know, a ceasefire, I guess. Why not? Um, what's the big deal? Well, think about that for a moment. I mean, it would put Canada offside with all of its major allies, the United States, the entire European community. Uh, if we care, our five eye partners like Australia and the United Kingdom, uh, it would really be to kind of remove Canada from you know, if we use kind of older language, like the allied states, right? And let's be honest about this moment. This is kind of like an allies versus the Axis moment. Who's supporting Hamas at this point? Um, who's calling for a ceasefire? Russia? China? Iran? Is that the company that we want to keep? And it raises some fascinating questions. You had a great, I recommend people go back and listen to it this week, a great discussion with Canadian Foreign Policy with Kim Nossel, one of our kind of leading academic uh, thinkers about, you know, kind of Canada alone. And I, I was listening to a podcast, just thinking to myself, this is a scary moment. Like if there was a different configuration in the House of Can uh, Commons right now, maybe we would have gotten a Canadian declared ceasefire. Yes. And I would just say like that really would remove Canada in a sense from the West. Like that's what it's about in a way. We would be outside of the West with a series of, of policies prescriptions around this war that again, align with Iran, China, Russia. It's a bizarre moment, Sean, a bizarre, bizarre moment. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a great, great, great set of observations there, right, Roger, I think that's right. Um, to, to say nothing, of course, of um, you know, just the basic principles at play here. Um, you know, yes, of course, um, um, Israel needs to uh, be prudential. Um, uh, you need to take a kind of prudential view about some of these questions. I think there is a risk um, that it uh, over, you know, it could in theory overreact and, and that could be a, 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 a problem. Um, but the, the basic idea that after having been subjected to, um, you know, this horrific terrorist attack that amounted to the largest number of Jews being killed in a, 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 since the Holocaust, that Israel would uh, essentially unilaterally adopt a ceasefire, um, just strikes me as um, not merely a kind of strategic mistake, um, but a moral one. Um, and in, in that sense, um, um, you know, I, I do think that that um, that there is an onus on on the Prime Minister. Um, to 
not merely concern himself with kind of balancing the the, the political dynamics within his own caucus, uh, but at the same time reflect the kind of principled voice that Canada has tended to have on um, Middle Eastern issues. But if we go from Parliament to the street, uh, uh, of course, we've seen ongoing um, rallies and, and protests across the country, um, some really high profile incidents of confrontations and even something approaching violence on, on campuses. Uh, we've talked a bit about this in the past, but why don't you just reflect, Rudyard, on what you've learned over the past few weeks? Because I think a lot of us have, have um, been a bit surprised, frankly, by the kind of magnitude of uh, the uh, at least rationalization, if not the support of Hamas uh, amongst the Canadian public, um, and the vitriol um, that's um, been subjected to Israel, and and one could argue um, the Jewish people more generally. Yeah, Sean, I mean, a lot to reflect on here. And I think my takeaway was that at the Hub, we have not been um, uncritical of what we felt prior to this war was kind of lazy, indulgent thinking on university campuses related to identity. And generally the hub has taken, you know, a very skeptical view towards these movements around decolonization and, you know, resistance with a capital R. But I think, I think what we've all come to understand in the last, you know, going on three weeks now, coming up to three weeks, is that there's something, Sean, that's different this time. Um, that these ideas that we thought were kind of college campus kookiness and that people would ostensibly, I would assume, kind of grow out of, you know, young people have always had countercultural ideas. Uh, that's fine. It's expected. It's probably healthy for society. But what we've seen is that these ideas have migrated outside of the campuses over the 20 odd years that critical theory and other similar doctrines have been, you know, taught at Canadian universities uh, ad nauseum, ad on mass to much of the labor movement, to swaths of the media, to within a lot of our policymaking institutions. And that we've come to this moment where a not insignificant cohort of society looks at this war and looks at pretty much everything through these very binary uh, you called it in your excellent essay today, Friday the 27th. Please do check it out, uh, listeners. Sean had a, a good piece on the need for the left to start policing itself. You called it Manichaean, like this black and white view of everything through a lens of power, oppression, you know, resistance. Um, this is the kind of moral uh, language, the, the, uh, you know, the compass by which a lot of our fellow citizens are now kind of charting their individual course and advocating for our collective kind of policy yes. response to this war, Sean. And I just, I don't think we can under understate the magnitude of that, of that revelation that Canada is a really contested place right now. And there are some, I think, dangerous kooky ideas that have come into the mainstream in a way that I never thought that they were. Yeah, uh, just great uh, insights there, Rudyard. I, I, I think of myself at some level as a kind of ideas determinist, you know, which is to say I subscribe to Robert Nisbet's uh, thesis that ideas have consequences. And um, I think what we've seen is, um, as you say, these ideas um, permeate 
uh, on university campuses for uh, for some time, and um, and in hindsight, it was in- invariable that they were ultimately going to manifest themselves in, in the broader society. Um, and I, I like your point um, that they that these the exponents of these ideas are are not merely um, using them using them to make judgments as individuals about how the world works and uh, and uh, so on, but they're actually increasingly demanding um, that it becomes the lens that that our collective politics uses, and and that's where it seems to me um, there's a there's a great need uh, for pushback. And, and I want to take up the subject of self policing um, because I'm, I'm grateful you mentioned my my essay uh, that I published today. Self policing is something I've thought a lot about, Roger, and something you and I have talked a great deal about as well. Um, listen, we have a pretty good sense of what would really take the hub to the next level, right? Lean into sensational um, content, provocative headlines, um, us versus them framing, the kind of stuff that everyone knows performs well on the internet. And we've resisted that uh, because there's more than enough of that in our popular discourse. We've tried to model a, a different type of uh, commentary um, you know, that, that is rooted in dispassion analysis. It has a point of view, of course, we've never, um, claimed otherwise. Um, but it's one that is, uh, uh humble, uh, self-critical, um, and, and at times been prepared to self-police, you know, listen, let's be totally blunt about this. We took some negative uh, feedback, Roger, when you went after the conspiratorial impulses and some of the conservative criticism of the world economic forum. Um, we probably lost some subscribers and donors as a result of that, but it was an important thing for us to do. Um, you know, uh, we've been, we were critical of, uh, some of the more, in my view, reactionary voices that brought down Jason Kenney in Alberta. Uh, and we called it out in an essay that I published in response that we called the lament for conservatism. So, uh, we feel like we've kind of walked the walk when it comes to self-policing at the hub and it's something um, that we'll continue to do, even though it's hard. Um, um, but, you know, it seems to me what we've seen over the past few weeks, I must say, um, is I, I haven't seen a lot of high profile left wing voices, Rudyard, calling some of this stuff out. I, you know, maybe I've missed it. Maybe it's appeared in newspapers or magazines or websites that I don't frequent. Um, but I've been struck, uh, frankly, by how silent a lot of leading left wing public intellectuals have been when it comes to the expression of the kind of ideas and values that they themselves purport to believe in, use to defend um, uh, acts of barbary and, and terrorism. And so I would, you know, I would say, to the extent there are progressive uh, listeners today, we've called it out the hub, we'll continue to call it out, call it out on our side, we think it's important, it's a way to police against uh, excesses and reactionaryism. Um, but you got to do the same. Um, uh, and it seems to me what we've seen over the past few weeks is in the absence of doing it, we've seen, um, these radical ideas, um, you know, really start to kind of amplify and, and multiply themselves. And, and, th- and th- that's a great concern. I mean, just to put it in some, um, for all of the concern about the far right. And, you know, I think we would say that there ought to be some concern about the far right. Um, there needs to be similar levels of concern about the far left. And we've seen that, uh, in the past few weeks. Here, here. Let's, uh, yeah, continue to watch this because um, we're starting to see some, uh, to their credit, some universities. Toronto Metropolitan came out and, uh, to their credit, really uh, 
rightly condemned um, members, students of their law school association for sort of some ridiculous uh, remarks regarding Hamas and the current conflict. So, I, yeah, my sense is that uh, we're all aware of something now. And uh, the interesting question will be, to what extent does this experience really inform people's behavior going forward for the longer term and the degree to which these ideas in the parlance of academe need to be contested themselves um, as opposed to kind of received as gospel. Well, let's take a quick break. Back on the other side, we're going to talk carbon taxes, big climb down by the government this week. What the heck does it mean? What's the future of the carbon tax? And what does it say just about the political uh woes of the Liberal Party this moment if they are willing to start to backtrack on arguably one of the biggest legislative accomplishments of their last eight years in government. Back after this break. Thank you for listening to The Hub's podcast. Wanted to take this opportunity to let you know that you're just one click away from receiving complimentary access to The Hub's daily email newsletter. We call it Per Diem, and it features some of our best analysis and insights, all built around the big issues and ideas shaping our world. Simply visit our website, www.thehub.ca, follow the links to subscribe, and the next morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, you'll receive Per Diem in your inbox. You can unsubscribe at any time, no worries. But we think you're really going to enjoy what you'll hear, see, and read via Per Diem, our daily subscription email. Thanks again for listening to this Hub podcast. Now back to our program. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the publisher of the Hub. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, is taking a break this week. Well, Sean, we've seen it, um, I guess, driven by opinion polls in Atlantic Canada, a significant uh, rejigging of the carbon tax for that region related to home heating fuel and um, increased rebates for uh, rural uh, folk in Atlantic Canada. What do you make of this? Uh, why is this happening? And you know, what does it foretell about the future of the carbon tax because i sense you know when you start to open the chinks in the armor yes you know you're giving your opponents uh people who oppose this tax which there's a lot of them out there opportunity to start to wedge and to wedge you harder in a sense blood is in the water people smell it and the sharks are coming yeah this is a major development um uh policy wise and 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 no doubt politically as well, but just to stay on the policy for a moment, uh, the Liberals, of course, came to power um, with a proposal for a carbon tax. You know, I, I quibble that they were less than transparent about their intentions in the 2015 election, but that sort of spilled milk. Um, soon thereafter, they started to make, you know, something approaching a full-throated case for carbon tax as the most efficient means to reduce carbon emissions. And behind them, they had a ton of academic scholarship and a lot of elite expert opinion in favor of that line of argument. Um, and what we've seen systematically since then, Rudyard, is the slow erosion of the carbon tax is the principal means by which the government of Canada 
um, is combating climate change. Um, even before uh, yesterday's announcement, we had seen um, the enactment of a growing number of, of regulations and corporate subsidies and all the rest, all the sorts of things that carbon tax was supposed to substitute for um, because you could get the, got the sense that the government was increasingly getting kind of squeamish about uh, about the, the carbon tax itself. Uh, I, these numbers aren't precisely right, but they're directionally correct. Um, before yesterday, the carbon tax represented something like 25% of the share of emissions um, that were projected to fall between now and um, the, our Paris target. So in other words, uh, more than half, in fact, something approaching two thirds uh, was coming from uh, uh, other policy means. After t yesterday's announcement, that share will fall even more significantly. We, we no longer have a kind of carbon tax plus some other more targeted measures. We have a bunch of other stuff with a kind of small uh, and um, um, limited uh, a carbon tax as part of our, our climate plan. And you know, I, I'll turn it to you in a second. Uh, but what's striking is you saw just yesterday a lot of that elite opinion that had been backing up the government over the past several years on the carbon tax start to dissipate. Um, and 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 one kind of proof point of this, which is really striking, uh, this is a bit wonky, but uh, but bear with me. Um, you remember that the federal carbon tax says to the provinces, you can either adopt our carbon tax or you can create. Uh, a one at the provincial level that essentially conforms to a, a various parameters. And if you fail to, to do that, the federal government will impose its own. I've seen some analysis that what resulted after yesterday's decision would no longer conform with the federal government's own parameters uh, if a province were to enact it, which speaks the extent to which we have a carbon tax, we'll continue to have a carbon tax, but it is nothing like the one um, that was talked about back in 2016 or 2017. Yeah, it's important to note that, you know, other than the pandemic year, where obviously we were locked in our homes, Canada's total greenhouse gas emissions have just, uh, you could say generously plateaued, but in fact, they've, they've increased and they've increased because of really large population growth. Uh, so I think in the coming years, we'll see even a significant new step up in our total GHG emissions, moving us even further away from our aggressive, you know, Paris target climate. So two questions for you, Sean. I mean, one, at a certain point, this just like the gap between reality and uh, hopium vis-a-vis Paris and our supposed, you know, commitment to reducing greenhouse gas emissions, that gap suddenly gets to a point where just cognitively, it just, I think it just blows a hole through any realistic argument on the part of the government that it, it has a plan to reduce emissions. And then second, picking on what you said before, you know, the government also announced this week that they're not going to enrich the, the carbon uh, capture credits that would come through developing technologies like carbon sequestration. We know that they've kind of said that the caps on uh, electricity power generation, primarily in Alberta from natural gas by plants that would be built after 2025 to deal with a lot of this population growth, by the way, that's coming from immigration may also be not as kind of per a dur, um, you know, black line, as they initially said, which was effectively, you can't build any plants after 2025 that don't have hundred percent carbon capture. So where does this lead us, Sean? What do you think the policy response becomes? Cause I think one concern that 
we would have is that if they're going to lower the amount of total emissions that's coming out of the carbon tax, does that necessarily mean that more burden is going to go on to the energy sector to achieve this? So address yeah. that and then address the point of just how far away from Paris do you have to get? <laughs> do you have to be at Marseille? Do you have to be at Toulouse? Do you have to be vacationing up in Lille? I don't know. In order for you to just say, I'm not getting to Paris tonight, honey. Uh, I'm trapped here with some great duck Margot and a fantastic Bordeaux, and I'm not coming. <laughs> yeah, in Bill Morneau's villa. Um, yeah, let me take the second point first. I, I think there's a, a, a really insightful observation that um uh, you know if if you if you think about it this way there are kind of basically three policy instruments we can use price which comes in the form of a carbon tax or ca ca cap and trade system regulation or subsidies if we uh, continue to diminish the use of price um then it's going to have to come from um the two other instruments or levers uh, on the subsidy side the problem of course is with this week the federal government released its final fiscal numbers from last year Debt service costs went up 42% year over year. Um, you know, at a certain point, you, you can't uh, get to Paris by uh, subsidizing battery plants uh, to $13 billion uh, a piece. And so the only other option is more and more regulation. And you raise a really interesting point, which is to say, I, I think Albertans will note uh, if uh, the federal government uh, uh, takes action to diminish the um, economic or household harms from uh, emission abatement policies like we saw yesterday, and at the same time, impose a, a hard cap on emissions coming from the oil and gas sector, perhaps one even firmer or harder than they would have otherwise were it not for the fact that they're creating all of these various exceptions other ways, other places. In, in other words, we may not just have a kind of uh, incoherent and increasingly unprincipled uh, climate change policy, we could have an exacerbation of kind of regional politics uh, as a result of this. Uh, on, on your first point, I, I, I would say, yeah, I think that uh, that at some point um, when you start to dilute all of these different em emissions abating policies, it, 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 by it, by necessity uh, harms our ability to, uh, uh, to, to to meet our target, which I think was already in some question. But let me just uh, come to you on the politics, because one of the fascinating choices that they must have um, had to confront when they made this decision, Roger, is um, I think if you set aside the question of affordability, which of course has emerged uh, as a, a, a top issue in the past couple of years, I think the government actually liked the um, differentiation with the conservatives on, on climate, on carbon tax. Uh, they were able to say, if you care about the climate, vote for us. If you don't, you know, you can vote for the other guys. Um, by making these series of changes to the carbon tax, they're increasingly diminishing the differentiation between the conservatives and the liberals when it comes to climate policy. Like if I was Pierre Polyev, my position would increasingly be, there's not a lot of daylight between the two of us. So let's move on to the stuff that I want to talk about, affordability, crime. Uh, corruption, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, in effect, what the Trudeau government has done in terms of trying to solve this immediate problem in Atlantic Canada, and I mean immediate, um, uh, this happened hours before Pierre Polyev was to, was to do a rally in Nova Scotia on the carbon tax. Um, they've essentially removed one of the few 
um, potentially kind of sword issues that they had uh, vis-a-vis the, the conservatives. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, look, it doesn't help them in the bigger urban centers, which are their kind of last redoubt here uh, based on recent polls and collapsing you know, support across the country. So I would think this is a bit of a, uh, a gift to Jagmeet Singh that if the NDP wants to come out and try to pick up the climate mantle, the, he's going to have lots of talking points to push back against the liberals uh, vis-a-vis years of investing in climate and the environment as a core piece of their political brand. I know, I've heard it, I've seen it on Twitter. There is deep disappointment amongst the, the kind of climate crowd about what happened in Atlantic Canada because they know what we all know, which is once you begin chipping away, once political expediency takes over from policy coherence, good luck you know, stopping that train from leaving uh, Gare du Nord uh, in Paris. I'm just going to continue this analogy for as long as I can. Um, you know, that is high speed rail and it is headed out. Um, and I think they they know that that this is a really embattled prime minister. This is an embattled party. When you are this far behind in the polls, um, you know, that's when the desperation starts to kick in. And uh, wow, I, I've just, I was surprised by this announcement, Sean. I think it's significant and it suggests there are other planks in the liberal policy that they're going to backflip on uh, in the days and weeks to come. Yeah, and I would just say, maybe it's a, a go full circle. We talked about the importance of ideas. Maybe we ought to end there. Um, I, I think a lot of, conser- a lot of liberals, uh, pardon me, um, were proud that they had adopted when it came to climate change, an issue that I think animates a lot of contemporary liberals, uh, you know, something approaching um, uh, optimal policy, a world leading policy in terms of the design of the carbon tax, you know, that they had, they had, they, they, they had done something rooted in ideas um, that they could be proud that they had um, made the case for the climate carbon tax. They'd actually gone through two elections defending it and that it would represent um, a kind of heady legacy of this government. Um, and, um, you know, when you remain in office long enough, you know, uh, and especially in a world in which you're facing polls like we've seen, um, nothing is sacrosanct. <laughs> um, and so, you know, think about it this way. Maybe maybe this helps them a bit. Maybe they close the gap with Puyallup Polyev. Maybe we even we get to a 2025 election and they manage to squeak it out with another, you know, minority somehow. Um, at some point you ask yourself, what's this all for? Uh, and I think if you're a really kind of principled liberal um, who cares deeply about climate change and who is sort of proud of the ideational underpinnings of the carbon tax, um, it, you're feeling pretty crummy today and it's hard to answer that question. Yeah. Yeah, messy politics is rearing its ugly head and marring the kind of, as you say, the pristine, uh, yeah, the pristine uh, view of what the government and the ethical moral approach to climate should be for that kind of cohort of voters. Well, we'll, we'll continue to watch this at the Hub. Just two final uh, announcements with the listeners, the discerning listeners who've made it to the end of the program. We appreciate you. You've self-selected to get these words. So first, let us know what you think about the show. If you have... Uh, topics, ideas of Sean and I are doing things that are just ignoring, annoying the crap out of you. Who knows? Maybe I have some weird tick that really ticks you off. Send us an email to editorial at the hub.ca. We really appreciate listener feedback. Again, editorial 
at thehub.ca. And just finally to say, you as a Hub listener have an opportunity to jump on a terrific Monk debate next Friday, November 3rd, exclusive to Hub listeners, readers only, 50% off tickets. It's my privilege as the chair of the Monk debates to offer that to our Hub community. we got George F. Will on stage, one of the great uh, kind of conservative thinkers of our generation, Jacob Rees-Mogg, the British former cabinet minister, uh, conservative MP going up against two um, raging uh, socialist, libertarian, uh, communists on the crisis of liberalism, more specifically the crisis or not of classical liberalism. So grab your discount now. You, all you have to do is go to the Roy Thompson Hall box office Friday, November 3rd. Uh, you can uh, get 50% off with the code MD50. That's MD as in Monk Debate 50. A small appreciation from all of us here at The Hub for your continuing loyalty and support. Okay, Sean, have a great weekend. Uh, We'll do this all again next Friday. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program is produced and edited by Amal Otter Guzman. You can access audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's The Hub Dialogues, and it's waiting for you right now favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.